News more twisted than soap operas. And with worse actors. Can't be serious. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Will the U.S. and NATO really go to war with Russia over Ukraine? That's this week's Open Question. Well, the war drums are beating again, this time between the U.S., NATO, and Russia. The bone of contention is the former Soviet Republic, now independent country, of Ukraine. Despite assurances from numerous Western leaders following the fall of the Iron Curtain that NATO wouldn't expand eastward, the Western alliance has gradually encircled Russia and is now pressing right up underneath Moscow's southern flank in the hopes that Ukraine might become the newest member of the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance. Are we reaching a point of no return here, where a major conflict between these two nuclear-armed superpowers is unavoidable? I'm Patrick Henningsen, and we'll be exploring these and other aspects of this issue for this week's Open Question. Will the U.S. and NATO actually go to war with Russia over Ukraine? We spoke to a few people knowledgeable on this subject. One of them is a former congressional aide and political advisor and now director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, Daniel McAdams. And uh, Daniel, firstly, have you ever seen anything uh, like the virtual buildup uh, that we're seeing right now, the buildup to war. Uh, it's absolutely spectacular what's happening uh, in the West. The political and the media machine has really, really gone into high gear on this. I really haven't seen anything like it, Patrick, and thank you for having me on. But it's, you know, I, I was around, I was on the Hill when we were getting ready to go to war with uh, Iraq. Uh, and certainly when, you know, those times we were getting ready to bomb Syria. Uh, and there was a sort of sense of things happening that were, Although we not, we know they were lies, but they were they were real things happening. This really, I mean, people have may overstate this, but this really does have sort of a wag the dog feel. It's all fake, and even the main actors in this drama are saying, "Hang on, this is fake. This is fake." And yet, it still seems to have a life of its own when it's propped up by the media, particularly the U.S. and U.K. media, over and over again. It's it really feels like some sort of a Broadway produ- or a Hollywood production. And uh, you know, do do you think that that's possibly a good thing? I mean, I know I know that's it's it's dangerous, uh, certainly uh, tempting uh, war between two major powers, you know, let alone two Security Council members. But the fact that it's all happening in the sort of media space, uh, but not much is happening at the moment anyway uh, on the ground. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, the media is the intelligence preparation for a battlefield. You know, it's the getting everyone ginned up and geared up for everything. And the, the danger is, of course, that any kind of uh, event, uh, a false flag event, which, of course, we don't think that our government would ever be capable of such a thing. But any sort of an event like that, when you have everything ginned up, you can scream, see, we told you so. But it's um, the, the part that seems less threatening is that some of the major players seem to see through it, seem to... Uh, have the perception that Washington and London need a war and they're going to damn well get it uh, however they can. Uh, And I think that has kind of uh, put some headwind. You know, when the Germans said, uh, A, no flyovers, UK with weapons, and B, well, we'll send some helmets, you know, maybe a couple of of, uh, Dr. Peppers or something, you know. I mean, uh, when they put the kibosh on it, when NATO said we're not putting troops on the ground there, and then when the U.S. um, reluctantly said, well, we're not putting any troops either, I think that took some of the air uh, out of the big hot uh, hot air balloon that Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and Tony Blinken uh, were trying to put up. So, you know, on one hand, very dangerous, false flag, it's a tinderbox. On the other hand, the Allies aren't lining up like the U.S. had hoped they would. And po- politically, I, I've also noticed the media, especially, well, we'll take Fox News, for instance, uh, more of a sort of right, right-leaning right network uh, with a lot of Republican senators on, 
uh, more war hawks uh, generally in terms of foreign policy. And the the narrative is that Biden is showing his weakness and yeah. Vladimir Putin senses Biden's weakness and he's going to uh, take advantage of this. And, uh, and you know, America's in a weak position and so forth. So there seems to be that, uh, that's how they're gearing up that side of the political uh, argument in, in this in America. But then it, we have a situation where the political left, they are also very uh, vehemently pro-war, especially against Russia. In, in that sense, you know, is this uncharted territory uh, for the United States, just from a domestic political setting? You've really captured it, uh, Patrick. It is a weird political grouping here. It's Republicans being knee-jerk uh, armchair warriors. Uh, and then you have this whole left as part of American liberal left, which for four years has been spoon-fed, well, five years now, has been spoon-fed the lie of Russiagate. And they believed it because they wanted to believe it because they wanted to find something they could pin on Trump because they hated him so much and so blindly that they accepted this as a kind of religion, a religious cult. When you have them baying for war because they've convinced themselves that Russia has, you know, wants to deplete us of our bodily fluids, and you have the hawkish uh, Republican senators and Republicans who, who, who uh, you know, again, it's, it's so disgusting, so infantile about U.S. foreign policy. It's all about making political points. And the reason that is is because we never bear the consequences of our foreign policy actions. Oh, we're going to go lob some bombs over in Syria. Well, it ain't going to affect us. Oh, we're going to invade Iraq. Well, oh, that's too bad. A couple of people died. It never affects us. So it's, it's viewed as being a cost-free way of posturing. And, you know, for humanitarians, as I know you are, Patrick, and myself, it is sort of the lowest form. Uh, it's so disgusting to play this way with other people's lives. But again, you were right. It's a weird, weird coalition, and it's a dangerous one. Uh, you know, Joe Biden's presidency, uh, not a very successful start uh, by anyone's measure, I think even objectively. Uh, so you have a weak president who's uh, falling rapidly in the polls. And the same thing with the other major NATO power, the United Kingdom. Uh, Boris Johnson is uh, the prime minister in Britain is very hamstrung politically as well. And it, it, do you think that this increases the danger? And I, I'm only saying this because uh, you know in history there have been times when uh, administrations or governments uh, in the world have uh, looked to uh, a, a possible distraction and or a conflict or at least a, a threat of a conflict or some sort of protracted crisis in order to take attention off of the uh, domestic problems that they're experiencing. Is this a, a risk right now, do you think? What I think is fascinating in, in the context of what you're saying, where President Biden called uh, Zelensky, the, the president of Ukraine, and warned him that an attack was imminent, that Russia was about to sack Kiev, and that they need to take cover. And Zelensky said, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, I'm here. I know what's going on. I do have an intelligence service and an army. What you're saying isn't true. So there's this sense that we have an administration um, that's not, I was always say this, you know, that's that's sort of not draped in reality. It's draped in a reality that they wish they could control. And don't forget, the people that now have their fingers on the buttons here, the fingers on the nozzles, they are the ones who cooked this whole thing up in 2014 when they were working for Obama to the person. I mean, Victoria Newland is still intimately involved. Tony Blinken and Jake Solomon were very involved in 2014. So these are the same people. This baby is in their lap. They're the ones that have created it, and they're desperate to uh, to keep this uh, sort of this hope alive, this sort of monster alive that they've created. We also spoke to global affairs analyst and founder of Craner Analytics and former hedge fund manager Alex Craner. On balance, uh, will the Western powers go to war with Russia over Ukraine? Well, uh, my estimate is that the likelihood of war is uh, very low. I think that for most of the parties involved, it would be a hugely adverse event. Uh, the Russians clearly don't want it. Uh, the Ukrainians uh, have very little appetite to fight it. And I think that Europeans are extremely wary of it because the consequences could play out in a way that nobody can predict. So I think that for the most parties involved, the, their common interest is to diffuse tensions. 
from what I can see, there are two parties principally interested in this war um, escalating, and that's uh, the U.S. and the U.K. And uh, I think that with their maneuvering uh, failing to trigger uh, a proper hot war between Russia and Ukraine, I think they're slowly and gradually self-isolating themselves from the rest of the international community. And so uh, in this constellation of forces, um, you know, Russia would, by actually invading Ukraine, which uh, is being propagated by mainstream media in the West uh, 24-7, they would unite the West in a more forceful response against Russia. Russia doesn't want that. They would overrun Ukraine fairly easily. That's everybody's prediction. But it's one thing to take Ukraine. It's another thing to keep it and to manage it. It would become a huge headache for the Russians. And then you have to you have to administer the state that you that you took over, which is in the middle of an economic breakdown, in the middle of a social breakdown. And I don't think that Russians want this headache at all. So to conclude, I think that the sides in this uh, conflict that actually do want war are few, and they are slowly isolating themselves from the rest of the world. Daniel, in terms of this concerted push that we're seeing, especially from the West, to really sort of escalate uh, geopolitical tensions and, and really push the world uh, in the direction of a major uh, military confrontation. What could be the motivations here, uh, you know, regardless of uh, whether one thinks that uh, the White House is bluffing, that NATO is bluffing, uh, that, uh, you know, w- whatever party is, is seen to be the aggressor, certainly the West are accusing Russia of bluffing as well. Uh, but, you know, besides all that, what would be, from, from a Western point of view, from a United States point of view, what would be the, the motivation? Is there anything to gain uh, materially uh, by turning Ukraine into sort of an away uh, football, a proxy away football pitch? Uh, to settle their geopolitical uh, rivalry scores, for instance. Uh, is, is there any tangible benefit from an imperial point of view, putting yourself in, in, in the sort of imperial shoes of the war planners? What could be the possible benefit? Well, there is the beltway thinking, you know, which is that we have to encircle Russia because it's a threat. Uh, you know, it's the the old, what was it, the... Um, uh, the old doctrine that U.S. can never, after in the post-Cold War era, can never allow a a power to rise that can com- be competitive, that compete with it. And there is this whole – and that's what drives Washington, of course. And Washington is driven by the think tanks. And the think tanks are driven financially and otherwise by the military-industrial complex. So you have this kind of circular thinking that we have to run the world and it's all a zero-sum game. So if if you approach this whole issue from that mindset – then I could see how you could rationally say we need to put our thumb in Russia's eye because they better not tell us where we can have our alliances. If we want to have them on their doorstep, then that's our business and not theirs. But, you know, that's that's also fantastical thinking because the world has changed enormously, particularly in the last 15 years, particularly, I guess, you know, since the since the Iraq war, um, uh, since the U.S. failure in Afghanistan, even it's it's, it's heightened. It's certainly, I would say, since the intervention in Syria, which was blunted by a Russia that finally said enough and reluctantly went in and solved the problems in Syria. So I think the, the, the people that run things are the same people that keep screwing up over and over. They don't see how the much the world has changed. And that is the real danger. When you start believing your own rhetoric, when you start believing your own propaganda, then you're no longer a- acting as a rational person. It's a little bit ironic because the U.S. always accuses people that you as bad guys overseas as being irrational actors. You know, Gaddafi was irrational. We can't talk to him. Saddam Hussein, he's crazy. We can't talk to him. When it actually is the people making a policy in Washington who are the ones that are irrational and crazy. Well, it's interesting that uh, you, you bring up that point, and let's touch on that, uh, Daniel. The this, this situation normally, in advance of any uh, sort of kinetic action or intervention uh, by the United States uh, and its NATO partners, uh, will often uh, will want to characterize uh, a world leader or some uh, villain, uh, for instance, uh, in the, it's the personalization 
of the issue of the crisis. And normally it's, uh, it's, it's everything is up to uh, Vladimir Putin in, in this instance. And, uh, well, we don't know what Putin is thinking, uh, so we really can't say. And it all seems to, you know, focus on a personality. And we've seen that in the past, of course, and you can probably comment very well on that. But uh, this is a peculiar uh a characteristic of uh, the West, of the United States, and Britain especially, when they're preparing uh, for any sort of posturing or military action. But uh, what, are you, what are your feelings on that? Yeah, and it's, it's this sort of macho posturing, as you say. I mean, if you, if you stop and say, hey, do we really want to go to war with Russia? Well, then the response is, well, um, you know, Putin has put one over on you. You know, he's, he's over there pulling the strings on everything. Um, uh, you know, uh, Gaddafi is... is is, is a monster handing out Viagra and, and Saddam is throwing babies from incubators. It's always this demonization uh, of, of the so-called enemy. Uh, and it always, it always gets people stirred up. It always knows how to play on, on people's emotions. And that's what it's based on. And that's why it's dangerous. And again, the whole thing comes back to it being seen as cost-free. Of course, it's not. Um, you know, the middle class and working class bear the burden of our, of our aggressive foreign policy because you see the Fed having to create money out of thin air, which results in inflation, which destroys the purchasing power of working class people. So they do pay for it, but they don't see their cities charred and they don't see uh, these 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 other sort of disasters of war. So, you know, that's why we haven't really been able to very successfully um, get an active anti. I think Americans are passively anti-war, but not an active anti-war movement among the, uh, the center, among the, the, the middle classes and the working classes. We also spoke to Yuri Katchoff. He's the editor-in-chief of the publication Timer and is based in the historic city of Odessa in the southern region of Ukraine. Yuri, I wanted to get your uh, assessment on the, the situation. I know you're based in this part of the world. What do you make of the current hysteria? And certainly, if you're looking at the Western media coverage of the situation between Russia and Ukraine, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, to put it lightly, we've never seen anything like this in terms of the, the hysterics in, in Western media. It's pretty unprecedented. Mm -hmm. What is it like in, in Ukraine right now? Uh, well, uh, the main disturbing thing about it is uh, just like you said, that uh, this area is grown in Western media. Because in our local media, we saw almost exact situations in uh, 2014, 2015, and uh, so on. And in Ukraine, you know, maybe uh, people get used to this area when it comes from local media, local media, lo local politicians, and so on. But uh, it is really disturbing, uh, and it uh, has a big influence because grown from Western media now. And now, really, many people are scared, many people are frightened, and they are really, uh, and uh, well, even people ask me, well, is, is it serious for, 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 for this time? Is it really serious? Is it really as serious as they say? So uh, it really works, and it works in very... A dramatical way because uh, people are really in panic. And so we looked at uh, what the United Nations is saying about this and of course the, the resolution uh, 2202 was, was passed unanimously in 2015 uh, which backs the Minsk Accords. So mm -hmm. the, the, the idea of all the international community uh, signed on to it, they all seem to agree with it that uh, the, the goal is to realize the Minsk Accords and that's a good path towards peace and away from further warfare or bloodshed. But for some reason, not all the countries uh, in NATO specifically, they don't seem to be interested in the Minsk Accords as a peace process. So it, from your point of view in, in the Ukraine, where where is President Zelensky on Minsk? Where is the, uh, the Ukrainian government uh, on the Minsk peace process? There's a, one very big problem with Minsk, Minsk agreements because uh, they, in fact, they do not exist. They do not, do not exist as an international document which uh, was approved in Ukraine in a proper manner with uh, like ratification and uh, parliament voting and the president signing. So this is, as for Ukraine, it is not a document at all. As for Ukraine, this document even does not exist. It exists on the level of uh, United Nations and so on, but in Ukraine there is 
no such document at all. This is the first moment. And the second moment, uh, when Ukraine uh, was going for local uh, elections, in summer of 2020, the Ukrainian parliament has taken a decision about the election process, but uh, also has a point that uh, local uh, elections on the Donbass, on, on the uncontrolled areas of Donbass, will take place only after Ukraine will restore uh, full control on these lands. So it is um, directly uh, against Minsk agreement. So, in fact, Ukraine has already said that have officially decided that Minsk agreement would not be implemented for Ukraine. Ukraine will not do it at all. So it is official. It is uh, the statement of the parliament. And uh, I quite don't understand why anyone do not talk about Because, in fact, Ukraine, in terms of uh, laws, in terms of uh, uh, legal process, cannot uh, implement Minsk agreement right now. So that's the main uh, thing about this. So I think that uh, all uh, the discussion around these agreements, it's uh, pretty unfair for all participants of this discussion. And so right now, the, the, the talk across Western ma- mainstream media, politics, Washington, D.C., London, all the NATO member states, they, they all said that uh, Russia has amassed 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border and they're planning to invade Ukraine any day now. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. But then we hear President Zelensky recently saying, oh, wait a minute. I think we're getting a little bit too overexcited here. It's it's nothing to be alarmed at out of the usual. Uh, certainly we saw the same type of numbers and activity last spring. And he's, he's asking that the Western powers calm down and the Western media calm down. So what is what is the real story here? Is that a proper depiction of the situation to say that Russia has 100,000 troops on the border and they're ready to invade? From a Ukrainian perspective, what, what, what do you think the real story is? Uh, well, uh, I think we, uh, unfortunately, we cannot even imagine what, is, what the real story is. What uh, President Zelensky is talking about, it's connected with the economical situation because we have a pretty uh, sharp economical uh, problems exactly because of these talks of the war, which uh, w- will happen, like Western, spin- Western politicians say, because we have uh, problems. Uh, people uh, don't believe in Ukrainian uh, government funding, investing, and so on. We have money uh, goes out from the country, and we have problems with lo- local funding and, and so on and so on. And these problems are really pretty sharp, and they, are, uh, uh, they get sharpened in last month or two months. So uh, uh, Ukrainian government is in panic uh, with this, not even with war, but with economical things which are happening right now. They are really happening. So this is why uh, Zelensky is uh, talking like this. We'll be right back with more of this week's Open Question. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. They come by sea to bring hope and healing to the lame, the disfigured, the outcast. 
They're Mercy Ships, a team of dedicated volunteers who donate their time to provide free surgeries to the world's forgotten poor. Volunteers like Rachel Greenland. There's something that you can't even describe about seeing a life change so much. Mercy Ships is launching a new hospital ship that will double our capacity to save lives. Volunteer surgeon Dr. Tertius Fentner says, It is caring not only on a physical level but also on a spiritual level. That is what really changes them. We urgently need 3,000 volunteers to join us on our mission of mercy. From medical staff to IT specialists, galley cooks, plumbers, and more. If you feel a calling to help change lives forever, go to mercyships.org volunteer. It takes all kinds to change and save lives. Learn how you can make a difference at mercyships.org slash volunteer. Today's News Talk Radio, TNTradio.live. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. On this week's open question, we're talking about Ukraine. Will the U.S. really go to war with Russia? So we've set the political scene, but let's look at some of the broader aspects of this issue, the deeper geopolitical forces that are really shaping the current standoff between NATO and Russia. Uh, Daniel, it's interesting, earlier you brought up the cost-free aspect of these international escapades. In other words, uh, the the Americans were meant to think, uh, for instance, that they Uh, They're not going to really pay a heavy price that we can maybe saber-rattle. But that's not necessarily the case for for Europe. So this is the interesting uh, dynamic here, is that uh, if we're talking about this as a NATO uh, action uh, with Russia to defend Ukraine, uh, you have a number of European partners in NATO, and they might not have the same feeling that it's cost-free uh, as the U.S. electorate would be, who will generally support, uh, at least half the country might support some of these types of activities overseas. But that's not necessarily the case for other NATO members who are maybe closer uh, to the conflict zone. Uh, but uh, yeah. it, well, how much bearing would, would that have on the, uh, the, the actual decision to uh, you know, take a more aggressive stance by, by NATO? I think that's exactly the case, Patrick, and that's the one variable here that I think works to our advantage, us being the people who are not eager for World War III. I mean, the Germans, they're sitting in a situation where they've, they've closed down all the nuclear power plants. They're very dependent on Russia for, for energy. And the U.S. says, oh, don't worry, shut down Nord Stream 2. We'll, we'll put some liquid natural gas on a ship and bring it over to you, you know, at what, four or five times the cost. Um, it's just not It's just not a serious uh, long-term solution for Germany's problems, and Germany also understands uh, that you know the financial position of the European Union is not in the best shape. Uh, Germany and France, the last, as you said, the last thing they want is to be a the grounds uh, for another European war. They've been there and they've done that, and I think what they're doing, you know, Latvia is having a conniption. Um, a few days ago, screaming that the Germans are appeasing the Russians. And, you know, this is the problem. This is why many of us oppose NATO expansion in the first place, because you have these pipsqueak Baltic countries who've had a lifelong beef against Russia. Okay, fine. Fair. Fair enough. Uh, you know, there were some things that were done in the past. However, the ability to drag the entire NATO behind them to settle their tiff with Russia over something that's long past history and in fact was a Soviet uh, problem, not a Russian problem, you know, this is the real danger of expansion. And I think it's really sinking in to the, to the Germans, to the French, uh, and maybe even to, you know, for example, to Hungary, which has a lot of ethnic Hungarians in Ukraine who won't do very well uh, if a war breaks out. So I think, you know, that is a very, very good point, And I think that's uh, something to be encouraged by at this point. The mechanism for any sort of action, Daniel, is going to be, will be NATO's open door policy. And, and this is what uh, Tony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, uh, seems to be most concerned with. And it seems to be the rallying cry uh, for the West. And that seems to be the biggest bone of contention as well. Uh, for Moscow on this, that uh, you know, NATO says we reserve the right to uh, exercise our open door policy. That means any country that wants to join NATO may may have uh, membership in this organization, and that 
in in some way, Daniel, this is being equated with internet. It's like international law to to the West, uh, but really, it's just policy. It's just a NATO policy, but it, they're elevating it on that level of of international law. And I think this is the really difficult part of of this uh, part of their argument. You know, if if the average American would just take a moment and think. How is this to my advantage? How is it to our advantage to have Ukraine, an impoverished and extraordinarily corrupt, and the new uh, Transparency International uh, report for 2021 came out, and Ukraine is right up there with the worst, an extremely corrupt, extremely impoverished country with scores of ethnic problems, ethnic minority problems. How is this to our advantage? How does it make America safer to be obligated by a treaty to come to this country's defense. And it's never framed in those terms. I think if it were framed that way, more Americans would say, you know what? I, I agree, you know, this is just, this is not, I mean, this is not a schoolyard, uh, you know, dispute. This is something that's very serious. And I think if it were framed that way, Americans might wake up and realize that the benefit to the United States of NATO as such is is not only zero but it's less than zero it's it's a it's a uh, it's a distraction it's an expensive distraction and you know i mean i think sergey lavrov the russian foreign minister really hit the nail on the head and he says i don't even listen to jens stoltenberg anymore he's lost touch with reality you know i mean nato is basically an old folks home for has been scandinavian politicians you know and you know let them have let them sit around like the world affairs council and have their conversations but take away their armies for god's sake well this this is this is an interesting point so is is this really this latest drive uh, for a war and it seems to be uh, led by the united states and britain mostly uh, and is is this really about nato's relevance in the 21st century i mean is there a danger of it becoming well, is it becoming a political and ideological institution uh, as opposed to strictly a military defense pact? Uh, there's a, a lot of talk right now about values and about democracy uh, coming from uh, the Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg. Uh, this is a very different organization, Daniel, than it was 40 or 50 years ago. The interesting, the other interesting thing about NATO, because you mentioned ideology, and I think that's important in politics, but um, and this is a development that is very troubling. But if you look at all of the so-called fact-checking organizations out there that will check you and say, "Oh, Patrick, uh, you've said something that's a lie. Uh, you're off of Twitter forever." Well, they're primarily funded directly or indirectly by NATO and by Western. Uh, defense ministries uh, and, this de- and the and the and the uh, defense department and the and the State Department, uh, and this is how NATO has extended its tentacles into the political debate to silence any political dissent against it. It really has morphed into sort of a wannabe totalitarian um, kind of construct, but and it's also been desperately looking for a raison d'être. And, uh, you know, Ukraine seems like it to them now, uh, but it's only because, as you've mentioned, Boris Johnson's political problems. Uh, we have those in spades here in the U.S. with the Biden presidency that really is DOA, um, uh, at least from the neck up. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's a semi-perfect storm when you have these three actors desperate for some action. Um, the only thing I think that's holding it back now is I think Zelensky has realized that he's the pawn in this game. A war is going to be fought on his soil that won't be fought by Americans. It won't be fought by NATO or Germans. Uh, it'll be fought and, and, and lost by his own countrymen, uh, and after which they'll probably will lose their country. So I think that's the wake-up call when Zelensky actually said to Biden on the phone on Friday, hey, calm down, you know, take your medication. You know, and, it's, and I think from then it's kind of backed down because we have an unwilling participant. Hey, you know, Russia's going to invade. No, they're not. Yes, they are. No, they're not. Uh, so I think you know that that that's that's where we are right now. I mean, we we saw recently uh, Fox News and other U.S. media outlets are, uh, have the uh, the mayor of Kiev 
uh, Vitaly Klitschko, former uh, heavyweight boxing champion turned uh, politician uh, in, in Ukraine. He's, he's being paraded around U.S. media, and they're especially on, on a network like Fox, they're saying, Vitaly, will you stand up and fight those Russians hand-to-hand when they come to sack Kiev? Now, that might play that image might play over to some American viewers but you know from a practical point of view what is the likelihood that Russia is going to do a scorched earth march down to the capital and sack Kiev I mean if you, if you were on Fox Daniel and they actually gave you a platform to to respond to something like that what would you say I would ask them if they're on narcotics you know maybe magic mushrooms because I mean this would be so out of character for Russia, and I'm not an apologist by any sense of stretch of the imagination. Russia, if anything, and you know the criticism of Putin um, comes from uh, so his right, for lack of better term, it's actually from the Communist Party, um, which has encouraged him to recognize Donbass as Russian territory. The, the 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 opposition that he has, it's politically significant in Russia, saying stop being so wimpy. You know, the reality is he's an extraordinarily cautious leader we saw that in syria we saw it uh, we see it over and over when he's prodded when he's provoked he's very cautious so if he woke up one morning and said you know what i want to go uh, attila the hun on kiev i would wonder maybe what he's been uh, smoking or what he's been taking because it would be so out of like him or not it would be so out of character uh, someone who very carefully does a cost-benefit analysis for every foreign policy action, um, he would he would gain nothing, he would lose everything, and he would he would inherit uh, a, a, a you know like basically like a you know like an, an, a 1980s K car or something. I mean a useless useless piece of real estate that he doesn't need. So, I mean, I mean I think it's just it's just hard to imagine someone with a rational mind who thinks this way, who has any sense of what happened, you know, over the past five or 10 years. Well, is, isn't this really uh, the, the, the sort of characterization of, of foreign leaders uh, by Western countries that is, is normally used to sort of stoke the fire? And there seems to be a disconnect because, as you said, uh, Russia has been very uh, predictable. They've been very careful and cautious. Uh, you could call them a normative uh, power in using an international relations term there, but it's so there's they're a rational state actor as opposed to an irrational state actor, but they're being characterized by the Western corporate media machine as an irrational state actor that's just uh, threatening all of its neighbors and uh, wants to take over and uh, rekindle the glory of the former Soviet Union and uh, reabsorb all of its satellite states. Those are the exact words that are being used in the U.S. media at the moment on just about every major channel uh, when I do uh, tune in to watch. So, uh, how how do how what's the solution to this? Because uh, it's clearly Russia is acting and has been acting as a normative power. Well, it's you know foreign policy. The U.S. foreign policy is one of projection. Uh, we always claim that the others are doing what we are doing or are about to do, and this is just another example of that. But you know, I, I often regret my career choice, Patrick, because foreign affairs is the worst business to be in because it does if you're if you're right. Nobody cares and it doesn't matter. And if you're wrong, as long as you say the right things, you keep getting handed the microphone on Fox News and any MSNBC or anywhere else. So there's no there's no reward. In fact, there's only punishment for being right. It's it's terrible. But as you say, you know, you talk about Klitschko. Well, I kind of remember a phone call with, um, uh, you know, with uh, Victoria Newland and the ambassador Jeff Pyatt in, in Kiev when they originally overthrew the government back in 2014. But I don't know if you noticed this, Patrick, but I've seen over the past day or so some of the mainstream media running stories apropos the Klitschko story of these young kids that are willing to go and fight to defend their country. And it has them with these really scary automatic weapons. And these are 10 year olds. This is the same media that you know would browbeat any country out of favor with the U.S. for having child soldiers. Now they're showing them in wonderfully positive light. This is such a propaganda ploy uh, on the part of the media, which always pushes for war because it's, it's good for ratings. Now, Alex, uh, let's talk about Crimea. 
And the recent comments uh, by Vladimir Putin uh, highlighting uh, that there are intentions uh, within factions of the Ukrainian government, obviously these would be the NATO-aligned uh, goals as well, to take Crimea by force if necessary uh, sometime in the future. It didn't specify when. So if that plan has NATO backing, then would, would we be looking at, at a major war over that issue? Well, that's, you know, it's it's conceivable, but we, we should not read too much into this because, you know, Ukraine also uh, said it in their in their national laws uh, that the country will become part of NATO, uh, that it's its national objective. And in 2019, they even enshrined it in their constitution that their objective is to become part of the NATO. Um, these are clearly... Um, political factions within Ukraine that are loyal to the West, that uh, that have cast their lot with the, with the United States, with UK, with NATO. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, their political power is not absolute. There are other sides in the equation. And I think that these uh, dreams and fantasies of uh, uh, taking over Crimea by force uh, will probably not come to fruition. And I think that, that, that there are several problems. You, you know, first of all, it, it would be very difficult to foresee that they could uh, win such a, such a, um, such a war. Uh, second, you know, there's a large segment of the Ukrainian population that has no appetite uh, for going to war over Crimea or, or against Russia for any reason. And third, third, there are other political factions in Crimea that actually want to stabilize the situation, that want to have a constructive uh, relationship of cooperation with the Russian neighbors and who will be ready to push back against this uh, NATO loyal faction. And I think that as Crimea's economic and political uh, circumstances deteriorate, those political forces will be gaining strength, while the ones who are vying for confrontation with Russia at some point will be losing their strength. And I think that longer term in the future, uh, this situation will stabilize because there really is not enough appetite for uh, going to war at this point in, 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 in history. And I think that longer term, uh, there might be even less appetite for war. And Alex, uh, lastly, I want to ask is, do you think there's a bigger agenda at play? What is the big picture here if we look at this uh, incident that could potentially break out, it's, but it really is a symptom of something much bigger? Uh, what are the wider uh, geopolitical uh, parameters well, that, that's an that's an extremely important question, Patrick. Basically, I think it's extremely important to keep the biggest uh, perspective on this uh, on this issue in mind always when analyzing these events, and that is that you know, like you have a, you have something called the Western Empire in the West, which is you know, uh, uh, it's a it's a reincarnation of the British Empire, which is merely kind of shifted its headquarters to Washington DC after World War One, but basically it's the same structure of vested interests. And for more than a century now, they have had the explicit objective of uh, maintaining hegemony over the Eurasian landmass as their overarching geopolitical advantage, um, so, sorry, objective. And the, they are explicit about the reason for that. It's because that's where most of the world's energy reserves are. This is where the, most of the world's population is. And this is most of the world's GDP and global wealth, both in the enterprises and underneath the soil. Um, first, we had this uh, formulated by uh, Sir Halford, Halford Mackinder in, um, in 1904 in his Heartland Theory. And basically, he specifically says that who rules Eastern Europe rules the heartland, who rules the heartland rules the world island. And what he means by world island is Eurasian landmass. We had Zbigniew Brzezinski essentially reformulate those exact same objectives in his 1997 grand chessboard. 
And we had the U.S. Undersecretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, Wes Mitchell, in a briefing in to the U.S. Uh, Senate Committee for Foreign Relations, reiterate those same policy objectives in as late as 2018. So we're talking about uh, Donald Trump's administration, basically saying that the number one priority of U.S. foreign policy is to secure the American hegemony over the Eurasian landmass and to prepare the uh, the country for this challenge and he also says that we are uh, we have close collaboration with our close ally UK to uh, coordinate international efforts uh, towards uh, securing this objective and basically the empires cannot tolerate rivals so you know if you have the rise of uh, Russia and China who you know have become meanwhile close allies then that's a very serious challenge to your objective to um, dominate that part of the world and so if you want if if your object if your number one foreign policy objective is to secure your hegemony over uh, Eurasian landmass then you have to develop all these strategies for eliminating your rivals, which are Russia and China. And so obviously, you know, like you go to a country like Ukraine, uh, you try to infiltrate, it's a, it's a military and political establishment. You try to fund uh, military training centers, you try to recruit the neo-Nazi types that are uh, ready and willing to confront Russia and trigger a war if need be. And, you know, this is this is part of what the Western Empire is doing to try to eventually uh, weaken, destabilize regime change and ultimately partition Russia. Um, unfortunately, today, I think that the likelihood of them being successful at this are low because, for one thing, uh, the Russians and the Chinese have understood this game. They understand what the conflict is about. It's not about a little bit of territory. It's not about democracy and freedom. And it's not about ideology because neither Russia nor, nor China are really communist nations anymore. And so it's about pure and simple hegemony over resource-rich areas of the world. And so Russia and China are prepared for this. They are uh, strengthening their defenses and they are ready to uh, push back against this attempt to uh, wrest control of the region from their hands. Alex Craner, thank you very much. Thank you. Daniel, you, you have some knowledge, obviously, about Eastern Europe. So what, what, what do you think the feeling is in general uh, along the Balkan regions and along the, the further flanks of, of Eastern Europe there? You know, what, what, what would their feelings be if, if NATO was to, to become more aggressive and pushing pushing things right up to the edge of, of a conflict. I think there is a real divide, and I think it's becoming more obvious. I think I read the other day that Bulgaria, a NATO member, said that we don't want to send any troops uh, if, you, if you guys do that. And several other NATO countries have said, we don't want to participate in this. We're not interested in it. And I think, you know, it's possible uh, that they may be overplaying their hand uh, in this affair. And I think that's maybe... Fingers crossed why it hasn't gone any further and why even the, the ploy day with the U.S. and the U.N. Security Council uh, demanded that Russia explain itself to deny the accusations, to prove that they're not about to evade, you know, to prove a negative. It hasn't it hasn't been successful today. And ultimately, hopefully it won't be successful. But, you know, they can pull anything out of their hat and the media will run with it. And Daniel, how, how important do you think Germany is in, in all of this? Uh, consider this as a geopolitical exercise. How important is Germany? I mean, there seems to be a lot of attention, uh, a lot of pressure uh, being placed on Germany on, on many different fronts. And uh, to put this in a historical perspective, this, isn't this one of the uh, main objectives of the United States post-World War II? Are we seeing a continuation of that same policy of, of sort of, in a way, containing Germany or at least keeping it facing West? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, you know, this is conjecture on my part. But my guess is, with Germany being in a, in a, in a predicament, you know, and certainly in terms of its energy policy, but, you know, but looking at the balance sheet and realizing things are not going extremely well for the EU, having developed um, 
in trading ties, business ties, industrial ties with Russia. My guess is that German industry has sat down with the new German leadership and said, listen, guys, um, the last thing we need uh, is to is to have a war or is to break our ties with Russia that are that are pretty successful right now in an otherwise dismal economic landscape. And I just wonder, and I could I could be wrong, but I just have a sense that this is the kind of dynamic that's happening um, behind the scenes in Germany right now. And they may that may have put the brakes on some of this. And and what uh, what do you think the chances are of uh, bilateral negotiations, Yuri, uh, between Kiev and Moscow? I mean, is, is there any possibility of uh, direct uh, diplomacy uh, between Ukraine and, and Russia without the United States as a kind of the middleman or the mediator, as it were? What are your thoughts on this, and what's the sort of political feeling right now uh, on that in Ukraine? Uh, if you asked me this question about uh, two months ago, I'll say that it is impossible. But right now, uh, I think that maybe uh, President Zelensky understands finally that uh, United States are, uh, are not uh, those kind of good guys. He, he, he thought, uh, so maybe he'll understand the thing, and maybe, uh, but I still don't think that it's very uh, high chances of this. Maybe we will uh, get to some direct uh, negotiations, direct um, dialogue uh, between uh, Russia and Ukraine, between Moscow and Kiev. I think that it is possible, but I think the probability is pretty low. Uh, the last question I wanted to ask Yuri is, from your point of view in Ukraine, and also someone mm-hmm. who, who works in media, what, what do you think are some of the, the important points that Western media or, or, or Western punditry are missing on this current situation? I think that the most important uh, point here is that we have a very complicated, very and very harsh situation here. And people who uh, are talking about the situation, people who are writing about the situation, should always remember that it is a question of thousands of lives and uh, you, everyone, I think, should be very careful. The main goal is to not to make situation situation even worse than it is uh, for now. And I'm afraid that how this uh, story about Russian invasion do not making this situation better. It's making it worse. Uh, thank you very much, Yuri Kachov. Thank you. So we've had a chance to hear some excellent analysis and a few different perspectives on what has really become an incredibly complex and potentially volatile situation with the U.S. and NATO posturing for war with Russia over Ukraine. At present, a full-blown war seems very unlikely, but the situation is very worrying nonetheless. And the potential for provocations, false flag attacks, and proxy skirmishes is still very much in the frame. And more importantly, beyond all of the geopolitical rivalries and brinksmanship between the major global superpowers, there are already losers in this story, which are the Ukrainian people. Because all of the hype and hysteria around an alleged Russian invasion in Western and media political circles has really devastated Ukraine's already faltering economy, an impact equal to economic sanctions. Something to think about. I'm Patrick Henningsen. Thank you for joining us for this week's Open Question.